Made Visible is a podcast that gives a voice to people with invisible illnesses. There's no blueprint about how to live with an invisible illness or how to be there for someone who has one. We're here to help people feel less alone as they strive to create a normal life and to create an awareness of how we can be supportive of people who seem fine but aren't. Hey guys, thanks for tuning into Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so glad you tuned in today. We've been on a bit of a hiatus as we plan for season three, which is launching next week, June 4th, so keep an eye out. In the meantime, we wanted to share the first episode of season two with you as it was a listener favorite. So if you haven't listened before or you want to listen again, here's Gunnar Esiason. We'll see you back here next week with an amazing new episode. Today's guest is someone whose parents started a foundation after he was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis, and he's now devoted his life to the cause. Gunnar Esiason is the program director, patient advocate, and board member at the Boomer Esiason Foundation. Welcome, Gunnar. Hey, Harper. Thanks for having me on. Really, uh, really excited to be here. Absolutely. So glad you're here. So tell us, what is cystic fibrosis for people who may not know? So uh, cystic fibrosis is a rare genetic condition. Uh, it's a protein dysfunction condition uh, and essentially attacks the way my body regulates mucus production. Um, what that does is it allows for uh, chronic infection to take up hold inside my, my lungs and my respiratory system. Then it also affects a number of my other organs as well, like my digestive tract, male reproductive organs, and, uh, and a few things here or there as well. Most people know of cystic fibrosis just by uh, the way they sort of introduced into genetics in you know, ninth or 10th grade. It's it's a recessive genetic disorder. So, you know, basically what has to happen is both of my parents have to be carriers of the disease um, and then it's passed down to me, you know, through hereditary means. And right now, the, the you know, the general feeling in cystic fibrosis is that uh, things are actually starting to get better for us uh, with the disease, uh, you know, on the whole. We're, we're sort of in what I consider the, the golden age of drug development, and it's been a long time coming. I'm 27 with the disease. Right now, the median age of death in patients is around 30. Um, it's and that's slowly going up, which which is a good thing. Uh, but but for the most part, a lot of people with cystic fibrosis at, at you know this day and age are able to live somewhat full, successful lives. Um, you know, a lot of us go to college, a lot of us have full time careers, and more and more of us are starting to have families and and move on to that stage of life as well. I think uh, as as far as the you know the invisible illness side of this is, is concerned, is if you did look at me, you wouldn't really see that I had cystic fibrosis. I look like you know a, an otherwise you know healthy person. Uh, but I am dealing with a demon inside me. Right. And you were diagnosed when you were two. So what was it like living with a chronic illness when you were two years old or growing up? So most people with cystic fibrosis are diagnosed right at birth. I was actually misdiagnosed negative right after I was born. And then, you know, a couple of years of uh, some hardship, I can't say I really remember those days, uh, led to a positive cystic fibrosis diagnosis when I was two years old. And, and really growing up, you know, I, I didn't know any different, right? You know, your my life was just consumed by medications, treatments, um, and it, it was just you know normal everyday thing. And uh, my parents really went out of their way to promote a normal life, right? You know, they wanted me to have friends, they wanted me to play sports, they wanted me to go to school, um, you know, they wanted me to have you know fall down, you know, hurt myself, get up, and you know, basically things that kids do in everyday life, really. And and what that you know what did for me is it, it prepared me for life later with cystic fibrosis, you know, for being independent when I went to college. Um, you know, being able to take care of myself and eventually, you know, having a career. And and I really do think it is a testament to the way my parents decided to raise me. They, they kind of looked at cystic fibrosis as more of a challenge than anything else. They didn't see it as a barrier uh, to my existence. 
Do you think there was ever a time in your life, maybe as a teenager, when you sort of had this aha of I have this condition and everyone else doesn't? So that actually happened to me when I was in first grade. I was uh, six or seven years old. And my parents woke me up really early one morning to go to, to go to the hospital. And going to the hospital wasn't like a, an unusual thing. But what was unusual about this one moment was that we were, it was so early in the morning. It was like 6 a.m. And we were uh, I was getting my care at Cincinnati Children's Hospital at the time. My dad was in the final year of his NFL career uh, with the Cincinnati Bengals. And uh, my parents came into my room. And they said, Gunner, we have to go to, the, you know, go to the doctor, you know, get something done, whatever. And it was early. But, you know, like anything else, I was like, all right, you know, we'll, we'll go to the doctor, whatever. But on the car ride, everything was a little different. You know, the my parents were very, very tense. You know, it was like the, the feeling in the car was just different than the usual car ride uh, to Cincinnati Children's Hospital. And finally, about halfway there, my dad turned around from the front seat. You know, my mom and dad were up front and I was in the back seat, probably in the car seat or whatever. And my dad finally said to me, Gunnar, this is not going to hurt. Hmm. And so that was a little different. And I was like, what do you mean this isn't going to hurt? He's like, just don't worry. It's not going to hurt. It's not going to hurt. And for the rest of the car ride, he kept saying, this isn't going to hurt. Now, in, in the mind of a six or seven year old child, you know, reverse psychology definitely starts to yeah. kick in. You know, it's not like an unusual skill for a little kid. And it was, uh, it, it was, it was a little different. You know, my mom was very quiet. My dad just kept saying, "Gonna, this isn't gonna hurt. Gonna, this isn't gonna hurt. Gonna, this isn't gonna hurt." Wow. And finally, finally, when we got to Cincinnati Children's Hospital, instead of going left to the cystic fibrosis clinic, we went right to interventional radiology. I was about to get my first ever. Pick line. A pick line, for those of you who may not know, is essentially a a long term IV um, and in cystic fibrosis because of the mucus in our lungs. You know, our condition allows for the whole, uh, you know, for a chronic infection to take hold within our lungs. You know, we're dealing with you know some of the really nasty bacteria that's out there, like MRSA, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, Burkholderia cepatia, non tuberculosis, mycobacteria. You know, those kinds of things are are things that people with cystic fibrosis deal with. And I was about to get treated for my first ever pulmonary exacerbation. But no one wanted to tell me that. So we got to the interventional radiology unit and we're in there. And now I'm like totally panicked. You know, I, I was changed out of my clothes. I'm in the little hospital, you know, gown. My, my, my parents are very tense. My dad continues to say, this isn't going to hurt. This isn't going to hurt. This isn't going to hurt. And you continue to not know what's happening. Well, you know, now I'm you know starting to realize that something different is going to happen. Until finally right. an, an anesthesiologist walks into the, into the room. We're like in the little waiting room. I, w- I consider it like the holding area before the, you know, the big opera, you know, the, yeah. uh, I guess the OR. I'm actually sitting on my dad's lap. We're on like a gurney. Uh, and my mom is right next to us. And, you know, my mom is trying to reassure me. And finally, the anesthesiologist walks in and is like, you know, Gunner's going to have to uh, calm down here. You know, and we can give him something for that. We can give him, you know, a little drink we'll call, you know, called Versid. Versid is basically a, a calming medication. Um, and, you know, intravenously it can be given to people for sedation purposes or whatever. But, you know, I was going to drink it and it was going to just, basically a chill pill. It is a chill pill, essentially. But it came in liquid form. And like any child, I didn't want to drink any sort of medication. It's just, you know, the idea of drinking medication when you're six years old is just unfathomable. Um, So, uh, you know, after, you know, uh, basically, uh, you know, some heart-wrenching minutes, my parents trying to convince me to to drink the medications. I wouldn't do it. Now I'm crying. You know, finally, like an army of nurses comes in to try and convince me. They even bring an Irish nurse in. She's like, let me show you how we do it in the old country. Oh my God. <laughs> and like the whole basically thing is falling apart. Uh, my mom is like, what the hell are we in? You know, what have we gotten ourselves into here? And finally, really after 45 minutes of this, the anesthesiologist walks back in and she's like, you know, Gunnar's going to have to take this. He's really going to have to relax. We can see he's very anxious because um, if, if he doesn't, this is really going to hurt him. And, and, and the moment I heard that, I 
I kind of clicked like, okay, this is not good. So I jumped off my dad's lap, off the gurney. I looked at him square in the eye and I said, you lied to me. And then I ran away. I ran out the door, through the hallways, and into the lobby of Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Back in the room, my mom is like, Boomer, go get him. Go go get Gunner. So my dad gets off the gurney, and now he's running through the hallways in the lobby of Cincinnati Children's Hospital. And mind you, he's the starting quarterback of the Cincinnati Bengals. So everyone knows who he is. So there, there goes Gunner Esaias and followed by his father running through the, the hallways of, of this hospital, this major hospital in Cincinnati. Everyone knew who we were because we were on Sports Illustrated. You know, it was the quarterback's crusade. It was a, it was a very localized thing that, you know, everyone knew that Boomer size and had Gunner size and that, you know, the child with cystic fibrosis. So yeah. everyone knew who we were, but we were running through the hospital making this ginormous scene. And, and finally, like, I kind of got myself trapped in a hallway. You know, it was, a, it was like one of those doors that you just can't get through in the hospital without a key card. <laughs> um, so I'm kind of stuck. And, you know, everyone's kind of like looking. It's like, what the hell is going to happen? And my dad comes over and is like, Gunner, please calm down, calm down. Like, you're making a scene, relax. This is not good. Just calm down, please. I'll do whatever you want. And the moment I heard that, I became a businessman. Mm. I said, you will do whatever I want, huh? And he said, I will do whatever you want. Please calm down. And I said, okay, I want a, a Nintendo 64. That's what I want. <laughs> and while well, this is actually the story of how I became the coolest first grader in class, it's also when I realized that I was different from everyone else in my class because we went back into the interventional radiology unit. I, you know, I sat there for the pick line insertion. It was, you know, I, I screamed and cried all the way through it. Uh, but in the end of the day, my dad held true to his work and got me the Nintendo. You know, probably shouldn't have rewarded bad behavior, but he did. And my, my mom was, you know, more than happy to go along with that, of course. But it was really the first experience that I had where cystic fibrosis made me different from everyone else. Um, but I would also like to, our listeners to know that. I've had a number of pick lines ever since that one moment, and it's gotten a lot better every time. Okay, that's good to know. What a story. Wow. Yep, that actually happened. It really it really did happen. And you remember it the way that you just presented it. Yep. I mean, it was one of those things where it became like a family legend after the fact. You know, it was in the moment. It was like a terrifying moment for me, my parents. It was just a terrible situation gone wrong. The, the anesthesiologist came in and she, you know, she didn't sugarcoat anything. Which, you know, I think is appropriate for, you know, adult care, maybe not for pediatric care, but it created the, you know, a horrendous situation where, you know, I was totally caught off guard and not prepared for, for what I was going into. And so from then on, you know, this is first grade. At what point did your parents clue you in on things? I mean, I think everyone's got a different approach to parenting of we're going to keep them in the dark or we're going to educate them. We're going to make sure it's sort of dumbed down to child language what was that like from then on? So cystic fibrosis, what makes it very unique is the care is very, very active, right? So um, for pretty much for every single day of my life for the past 25 years, I'm 27, diagnosed when I was, 20, when I was two. So 25 years, it, it's been basically anchored by my medication. So I'll do medications when I wake up in the morning, and that includes a number of nebulized medica- uh, medications, and it takes a lot of time. Um, and then throughout the rest of the day, I'll, you know, take pills to treat the digestive side of cystic fibrosis. My pancreas doesn't really work very well. So I have to take pancreatic enzymes to digest my food properly. And then at the end of the day, I'll do my nebulized treatments again. So, you know, it's, it's a very, very active thing. And the kids uh, have to sit there and do these treatments. And it's a very difficult thing for parents to sort of navigate with their children because every kid wants to be out there playing with his friends or playing video games or, or doing something other than sitting in a chair for an hour. Uh, but that's what we have to learn how to do from a very, very early age. So 
by virtue of that, you know, the kids and, and me included, we learn that, yeah, we, we have cystic fibrosis and we have to do something about it uh, from, from a very, very early state. The difficult thing is that our treatments sort of act as a band-aid. So what I say is they, they just prevent the things from getting worse, right? So we're taking treatments that basically control the symptoms of the disease in such a way that if you don't do treatments, things get worse pretty quickly. But if you do do them, you know, they'll progress, they get progressively worse slowly over the course of your life. So it's a very difficult thing for kids to learn that what they're doing may not, you know, give them immediate benefit, immediate relief from the illness. Rather, it's just something that holds everything together. And that's a, t- that's a tough concept to teach the children. Um, luckily, you know, my, my parents very, you know, raised me with, you know, a sense of discipline, um, a sense of motivation. My, my motivation was always my health. If I was healthy, I could do whatever I wanted. I could go to little league baseball. I could play ice hockey. I could go to school. I could do, you know, do things with my friends on Friday, Saturday night. Um, and my, my parents used the rest of my life as the motivation to get through those treatments in the early days to the point where, you know, as I'm older now, I just recognize the importance of them. And I can, you know, my, my disease has progressed to a point where, you know, if I don't do my treatments, I can feel it immediately. So it's definitely an uphill battle for a lot of parents of, uh, of kids with cystic fibrosis. But at the same time, you know, it's, it's, a, t- it's a team effort. Um, and, I'm, and I'm very fortunate to have an amazing support system, not only my, my parents, but also, uh, you know, my sister and the rest of my friends. And, and the way my, my parents really included my friends in my care was that whenever I'd have a play date or, you know, have buddies over at the house or whatever, it became treatment time, right? My, my parents showed my friends what cystic fibrosis was like so that they would be included from an early age uh, in my care. That's really cool. I love how they did that. And it wasn't a hidden thing. Mm-hmm. I actually just started using a nebulizer about a year ago this week. And it's, you know, not my favorite thing to do, but I definitely recognize how much I benefit from it. And if I miss a session for, you know, a day or something, or even a morning, I really see the difference. So it's one of those things where you recognize over time, okay, this is actually doing something, even mm-hmm. if you don't feel it immediately. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right about that. And and, it, and it's also a visual indication that something is wrong, right? Yeah. You know, we, we, we talk about, you know, invisible illness, and that's what cystic fibrosis is. Um, but you know, medicating and actively medicating is a, is a very visual indication that something is, you know, quote unquote, wrong with a person. So, uh, you know, and, and a lot of people with cystic fibrosis be included when we get to college, right? I got to college, I went to Boston College. When I got there in 2009, I was faced with the decision of, okay, how do I tell my new friends or the new peers, the people living on my hall, that I have cystic fibrosis? I'm not going to be able to hide it because everyone's going to know who I am. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be Gunnar Esaias and they're going to figure out who my dad is and they're going to immediately go to Google there's no secrets. I didn't have the luxury of, you know, keeping things a secret, but I never would have wanted to anyways. So, you know, the, the very first day of college, my college roommate was, um, was, was my, was my best friend from high school. And, you know, I, I wanted to have the normal college experience because my dad showed me the movie animal house when I was a very young kid, <laughs> not, not the best decision in the world, but it's still, you know, I was like, Oh my God, that's what I want college to be like. So, uh, you know, I got to BC the very first day of school and, you know, I, I, I had to decide how am I going to tell these people around me that I have cystic fibrosis? So uh, just for whatever reason, uh, our room became like the hangout room that first, the, those first few nights at school, probably because I got the best room on the hall from the disabilities office. Hmm. I can't, I, you know, I can't say that that didn't happen because it probably did. What does that mean? What was so, the difference? So basically, uh, you know, by virtue of having cystic fibrosis, I you know required disability protections, meaning I had to have my own bathroom uh, so I could basically wash and sterilize my nebulizers, uh, my, you know, my, my stuff like that. I had to be able to go to the bathroom because people would see if we have 
some gastrointestinal distress, I guess we can call it, um, and, and a number of other reasons. So, you know, the only rooms that had bathrooms in, in our freshman uh, dorm setting was pretty much the biggest room on every on every floor. So that's how I got placed into Perks. that room. Yes, exactly. Americans with Disability Act for the win. Wow. So uh, that first high school, though, we had everyone kind of like uh, congregate in our room. And uh, I, you know, I looked at my roommate. I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. And he's like, all right, man, I got your back. You know, don't worry about it. You got this. And uh, so I went in, I grabbed my nebulizer and I grabbed my vest. My vest is essentially a machine that basically pulses my chest and it helps me cough, helps me mu- move the mucus out of my lungs. It's a very big, cumbersome thing uh, that if you ever see a person with CF doing it, I mean, you know, they're doing what we call the vest. Um, and then I brought my nebulizer out and I just started doing it. And, uh, you know, there were eight or nine guys near that first night of school and, and everyone was like, just, heart racing? you know, I, I don't know. I didn't really know what to expect. Okay. But as, soon, as soon as I started it, uh, everyone just got really quiet, right? Everyone just totally shut up and it got very awkward. And, you know, I just started doing, you know, I, just, I was doing my, my nebulizer, doing my vest and my, my college roommate didn't say anything. I was like, thanks for the help, bud. <laughs> and uh, and finally, a very brave soul spoke up, and he's like, "Gunner, are you gonna pass that or what?" Oh my god! And I was like, "That is not what this is. <laughs> that that I am not passing this. That's not what this. I have cystic fibrosis." And then as soon as I said that, there was another awkward silence. And then finally, after a few moments, which also seemed like an eternity, someone spoke up and was like, "Oh, I know what cystic fibrosis is. My sister's best friend's uncle has CF." I was like, oh, all right, how's he doing? He's like, I have no idea. And then, you know, I had to basically explain what CF was to the people in the room. They all asked me a bunch of questions, and I was happy to answer them. Um, and then, you know, from that point on, m- most of the guys in the room that night became my best college friends, uh, to the point where a lot of them, you know, have done fundraisers for cystic fibrosis for us, the Boomer Size Foundation. Uh, they've run marathons for us. You know, they've just been actively involved in my care for a number of years. And I really credit, you know, my willingness to, you know, to reach out and extend, you know, my arm and show them what my life was like to them wanting to be involved in it. And, and really, I think that's what, you know, building a support system is all about. It's all about willing to trust somebody else. You know, I, I was willing to trust those guys, those strangers that first night of school. I love that. What a great story. So you've talked a lot about the treatment side of having CF, but what about your day to day? How does it affect you? Every day is kind of different. Um, you know, I have good days, I have bad days. The the chronic infection that's in my lungs is really what makes cystic fibrosis quote unquote deadly. That's really what brings along a lot of the symptoms. Cystic fibrosis is really just a condition that allows for infectious disease to be a huge part of my life. And and, and what that means is, you know, I can feel fevers, I, you know, can get the chills, I can have aches, I can have pains. You know, that's all stemming from the chronic infection, but what cystic fibrosis really does is it clogs my airways, right? So it makes it difficult to breathe. Um, and I, I cough a lot. And I have a lot of mucus flying out of a lot of different places. But, you know, an average day for me is basically I'll wake up. First thing I'll do is I'll, you know, I'll hit the treatments. I'll hit the nebulizers the best right away because overnight my lungs dehydrate and I need to clear all the, the shit that's in there in the morning. Then, you know, I'll kind of go on with my day and I also have a feeding tube. So uh, since I have, I have a feeding tube basically to supplement my caloric needs, I eat normally, um, but I, I have a huge caloric need. Uh, I need to take in about 5,000 calories every single day. And if you looked at me, I'm like razor thin. Like you would never know that that's what I'm doing because my body can't absorb fat and protein and all these different things. So I have to, you know, basically eat as much as I can 
and basically live by the law of averages and, and hope that my body is absorbing something. And, uh, you know, I'll do what I call bulls feed during the middle of the day. I'll go to work. I'll do whatever my day is encompassing. Um, and then I'll come home. I'll do my, uh, my nebs again at night, right before I go to bed. But also uh, a huge part of living with cystic fibrosis is exercise. We've learned that exercise is a form of treatment, a form of airway clearance for people with CF. So I have a rigorous exercise schedule that I have to, uh, maintain. I'm not doing as good of a job right now as I probably should be in that regard, but, um, you know, it's important for us to be active, to be forcing air in and out of the lungs to clear those lungs. And and that's a huge part of my life too. But then, uh, you know, after my nighttime treatments, I'll start my overnight feed, right? So my overnight feed is I basically have a pump that, uh, that connects to my feeding tube and, uh, pumps away while I sleep at night. Got it. And you mentioned that you coach your high school's varsity high hockey team when we were scheduling this. What got you into doing that? Is that just sort of a fitness sports thing that you're interested in? So as, as you can imagine, just by virtue of my dad being a professional athlete, I, uh, sports has been a huge part of my life. Right. I guess there's no shocker there. Uh, so right when I graduated college, actually, my health was like in a rapid decline. I was not doing well. Just I, you know, suffered a number of complications during college, just for whatever reason, just, you know, luck of the draw, you know, it's nothing, it was no one's fault. It just happened. It it is what it is with cystic fibrosis. I was doing some soul searching. I was like, I need to do something. I have to get involved. You know, my, my dream was to go to law school and, you know, get into advocacy and and all this stuff. But uh, my health just really prevented that uh, in 2013. And I was very sick. I was in and out of the hospital all summer long after graduation. Uh, until one day I got a phone call from the athletic director uh, at my high school, you know, my old high school. And he said, you know, he knew who, what I was dealing with and he knew how I was, you know, I'm not feeling great. And he said, Gunnar, you know, we'd love for you to come back to friends, you know, get on your feet, uh, you know, work with the, the football team and the, and the ice hockey team here and we'll see what that turns into. And it was really just an opportunity to do something. And then as the years went on, my health improved. I stabilized uh, after college. And uh, now I'm coaching high school ice hockey as the head coach with uh, with a local with a local team here. Are you enjoying that? I freaking love it. It is a huge escape from cystic fibrosis because you know I work for the BEF. I'm involved in CF. I talk to you know hundreds of patients every year. I hear a lot of great stories, but I also hear a lot of horrendous stories as well. About a lot of people with very very critical illness, and it's very hard not to you know put myself in those shoes because ultimately they're dying from something that's trying to kill me too. So you know there's a very you know, strange link there. Um, and, and hockey is a, a great escape from that. Yeah. You know, I love playing hockey. I, I still play. Uh, I play recreational ice hockey as well. Um, but I love coaching high school ice hockey. It is like the biggest escape from all this. And it's, it's a lot of fun. That's awesome. It's great that you have that escape and thing that you really enjoy. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from beekeepers naturals. Honey has always been one of my favorite products and it's how I sweeten most things. I fell in love with Beekeepers Naturals because of the transparency they provide about their products. They know that consumers want products that are sustainable, high quality, and chemical free, and they truly deliver. Plus, they're doing everything they can to save the bees. Bees don't just make honey, they also make powerful superfoods like propolis, royal jelly, and my absolute favorite, bee pollen. I put bee pollen on top of my matcha lattes, and it's delicious. It's also a great boost of B vitamins, minerals, and amino acids. Whether you want products that bring you endurance, immunity, productivity, or calm, there's a Beekeepers Naturals product for you. Try their superfoods from the hive by going to beekeepersnaturals.com. 
com slash visible and type in the code visible at checkout for 10% off. Again, that's beekeepersnaturals.com slash visible and type in the code visible at checkout for 10% off. And now back to the show. So you mentioned that you work for the foundation now. What made you decide to commit your time to this? Back to, I guess, where I was right after college. You know, it was just a natural fit. Um, my life has always been very transparent with my cystic fibrosis. You know, ESPN did a story on me in high school. HBO did a story on our family and when I graduated from college. And I've sort of always been in and out of the, I guess, the public eye as the poster boy. I, I hate the word poster boy, but whatever yeah. calls me. And it, it just seemed like a natural fit. And, you know, when I got into uh, working at, at the nonprofit, our, our family's nonprofit, I, I jumped into the, the scholarship grant committee. So one of our programs is we give uh, college scholarships to uh, people with cystic fibrosis. And it was it seemed like a, you know, a, a natural fit for me to, to jump into the college uh, scholarship grant committee because I'd be the one interviewing people who are applying for our scholarships, right? You know, they could, you know, a CFCF conversation over the phone uh, would go a long way for, for our scholarship committee. And what that really turned into as well was sort of like a data collection thing for me, right? I would figure out the unmet needs in the community. And then I would go back to our organization and be like, okay, we need this, this, and this, and we have to address them somehow. Um, and that's sort of how that kind of has parlayed into more of a, a larger advocacy role for me. And you enjoy it? I do. I, I really do enjoy it. It's not every day that people get to go to work and actually like what they're doing. Um, I have two jobs that I really love doing, you know, advocacy and coaching ice hockey. So it's something that I, I, I really do enjoy doing because I get to connect people that are going through what I'm going through. You know, they know what it feels like to be living with cystic fibrosis. And talking to those people is a very, uh, you know, I'm not sure there's a word that really captures it uh, in our language, but it's it's just, it's an amazing feeling to talk to somebody who knows what it's like. Yeah, I mean, that's why I started this podcast. There's a level of comfort. You know, that's the word that came up when you were saying that is there's a level of comfort of, I get this and I understand where you're coming from, whether our conditions are similar or different. There's just an understanding of what we've been through and what we're going through. You're absolutely right. And more recently, we've kind of jumped into the rare disease community, which I, you know, I'm sure you know what that is. And, yeah. uh, and you know, for our listeners, it's just basically conditions that have so many patients in the United States. And it's very, uh, there's a lot to learn from patient communities, right? There's, there's a lot to learn from the success uh, of, one, of one patient community, but also some of the challenges that another community faces and how you can work together. Because at the end of the day, right, you know, Rare illnesses are such a small, you know, sector of the population, but together we're we're a bigger group, and and uh, you know I think in a lot of ways cystic fibrosis has what many of these other illnesses and other conditions and other patient communities are striving for, you know, within the last you know twenty years we've brought you know four or five cystic fibrosis specific medications from the test tube to the patient, and a lot of you know conditions unfortunately cannot say that, and, and we've done that really through. Uh, you know, an amazing partnership between our, some of the nonprofit organizations and industry. You know, we've been able to partner with, uh, with some of these biotechs and you know, the pharmaceuticals out there, and we've worked with them to actually bring medications to, to patients. And I think, uh, you know, the model that Cystic Fibrosis Foundation has set forth called Venture Philanthropy is something that a lot of other illnesses and other, you know, uh, disease networks can, uh, can use and, and also benefit from in the future. That's really interesting. I mean, I think it is a more known rare disease, especially compared to something like what I have, where there's less than 300 of us diagnosed in the world. So what tips would you give to someone who's interested in sort of creating a community like this? 
So, uh, and Cystic Fibrosis, we're, we're very fortunate to have the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. Uh, you know, we don't have an affiliation with them, but in one way or another, every person with CF is affected by the things that CFF does. Um, and some of the strengths that Cystic Fibrosis Foundation has created is first, the clinical care network. So in CF, we have care centers throughout the country, and they are all linked through uh, Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. They follow you know, similar guidelines on care. And they are also, you know, given accreditations by the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation for the care they're providing for patients um, and also the clinical trial network, therapeutics development network that Cystic Fibrosis Foundation runs. Uh, the other thing that we have in cystic fibrosis is a very robust patient registry. Re- the registry has been around for a number of years. And while I would prefer that the registry is open access, meaning, I, you know, not guarded by the scientific community, I think it's important for patients to be involved in that. Uh, more so than CFF wants <laughs> right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but our, our patient registry allows for researchers to go in and look at different issues within the illness and show things that need to be addressed and things that we can improve upon and find patterns and, and, and all this great stuff. Um, that's another thing. And then finally, the willingness to partner with industry. You know, I think there's like this notion, this, and I can't figure it out, that, you know, the biotechs and the pharmaceuticals are the bad guy. They're, they're not. That is like the craziest idea ever. You know, the only reason I'm alive today is because these companies are actually giving me the ability to live. And uh, Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, in, in, in turn of the millennium, partnered with a company that was formerly called Aurora and now called Vertex um, and has essentially given what we call cystic fibrosis um, CFTR modulators. You know, that's the next generation of treatments that a lot of us see are getting now. And it's actually treating the underlying protein dysfunction that causes cystic fibrosis. Hmm. And, uh, and when CFF did that, they invested into Aurora and Vertex as if they were a venture capitalist, right? So they made an investment and that they were expecting a return on the investment on the other end. So when Cystic Fibrosis Foundation did that, uh, you know, they said, okay, here's, you know, however many millions of dollars, get into cystic fibrosis, you know, we're with you the whole way. And then when you make the medication, we get royalties from the drug sales, so fast forward now to the first medication called, called Kaleidico getting approved by the FDA, uh, and then Orcambi, the second medication from Vertex to get approved. Cystic Fibrosis Foundation basically hit the jackpot, mm. right? They sold the royalties on their initial investment in Aurora and Vertex for billions of dollars, right? So that billions of dollars has now funneled back into the drug development pipeline and has created probably the most robust drug development pipeline in medical history. Wow. That's very interesting. And and interesting how much of an advocate you are for the drugs, obviously, that are keeping you alive. Have you ever considered or integrated any Eastern approaches to your health? Yeah, absolutely not. I think that's all crap. Um, I, think, I think alternative medicine is like, there's no grounds in science. It's just not even worth my time. You know, I think that the broad term Eastern is... Uh, is a little misleading. You know, I consider there to be essentially alternative medications and alternative remedies. And that's just, you know, I'm like, why would I even spend my time on that? When we have a, you know, we have regulators that are, you know, out there designed to keep us safe, to keep us, uh, make sure we have, uh, you know, we're, we're aware of drug-drug interactions. We're aware of, you know, improving health and uh, making sure patients get access to these medications. I, I find my my willingness to try these things in based in science. You know, I, I'm a big believer in, you know, science has, has gotten us this far and, you know, I'm going to continue to move that way as well. Right. So do you feel that the current research that is being done around cystic fibrosis is promising? 
Yes, it is. Really within the last couple of weeks here, uh, we just received news from Vertex's next generation of medications where they uh, released late phase, phase three trial data. Um, and it showed, you know, an enormous statistical improvement in patient lung, lung function. Um, essentially, Vertex has these medications that go in and correct the protein dysfunction in cystic fibrosis and the CFTR, you know, proteins in the bronchial epithelial cells in the airways. And uh, it's basically correcting that protein to about 80 to 90% effectiveness. And mm. what that will do is it'll, it'll change everyone's lives. Um, it essentially will work for about 90% of the population, assuming we get FDA approval, but I can't imagine we won't based on uh, you know, the recent report that we all saw. But uh, essentially, in cystic fibrosis, there's, like I was talking about earlier, it's based in genetics, but there's different genetic mutations that, uh, you know, sort of associate with cystic fibrosis. There's thousands of mutations, um, and this medication will cover about 90% of those mutations. So uh, really, within the next year or two here, uh, a lot of people with cystic fibrosis are going to be living very, very different lives. Wow, that's pretty cool. It is. I got to tell you, the first, you know, when they released the phase two data about a year and a half ago, I read it, and I was like, it was almost too good to believe. I was like, yeah. I got to be... I was like, you got to be shitting me. This is, there's no way this is right. And then, uh, you know, they had another drug compound that went for uh, phase two data and it also said the same exact thing. And then you start to believe, right? You read these things and you're like, okay, what is going on here? And then to, you know, to get that news last week uh, with the late phase three data and then Cystic Fibrosis Foundations, you know, estimate that you know, people will be on this drug within the next year. You know, this time next year, it's, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to fathom it, but it's, it's really, uh, you know, one of the a, a medical miracle that really is not being covered right now. It's just, it's going un, unknown. Why do you think and, that uh, is? It's just because it's a rare disease. Um, you know, it's it it's uh, it's only you know there's only thirty thousand of us in the U.S. and you know, I saw a stat somewhere that you know more people in the U.S. die from falling out of bed in the middle of the night than people do from cystic fibrosis. So you know that's kind of what you know we're wow. we're up against. And, you know, I don't know if there's any truth to that, but I, you know, I saw that somewhere last week and I was like, are you kidding me? Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, the general public doesn't really have too much concern for that. And, and that's really what we're fighting for. You know, we all, this rare disease community really wants uh, the transparency into our illnesses so that, uh, you know, we get, we get public support and, um, you know, we want recognition for what we're doing. Right. Of course. So what's your personal goal for the foundation? Um, for the Boomer Science and Foundation, I think we need to continue to stay in our lane. And, you know, I talked a little bit about Cystic Fibrosis Foundation earlier and their venture philanthropy model and and the drug development. That's you know what their that's their lane. You know, they take care of all that stuff. We take care of patient needs in, in CF. So we fund a lot of the clinics. We provide financial aid by way of you know the scholarship grants. We also provide disaster relief for people with cystic fibrosis who find themselves in disaster zones. Uh, we provide transplant grants for people who are in that. Uh, stage of the illness uh, where they have to go through double lung transplant or some other organ transplant. A number of other things here or there. Um, and, and we do a very good job of of staying in our lane. You know, there's no reason for us to get bigger. You know, it's, we have, you know, I guess the only thing we could expand is the number of people that we're uh, impacting and influencing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's also important for us to, you know, make sure people are receiving, uh, you know, the care they need. Uh, we have to be able to hold clinics accountable, care teams accountable, government accountable and, and, and all these different you know, competing entities uh, within the healthcare sector uh, accountable to our patients. You know, it's important for people with CF to feel like they are part of their care, right? There's a hierarchy that exists in the healthcare system where I think that patients are like at the bottom of it. It makes no sense. You know, we have, um, I consider patients to be the, the most underutilized resource in healthcare. 
right? You know, the, the most successful doctors out there are the ones who work with patients, not talk to patients. Um, it's important to see patients as a, as a viable resource in healthcare because at the end of the day, we're living with it, right? We spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year living with the illness. If you're not an expert in the illness by the time you're 15 years old, <laughs> you know, something's wrong. So, you know, I think it's important for, uh, you know, families and patients to understand what they're dealing with and also be empowered within the clinic to make sure they're managing and micromanaging their care. Yeah, absolutely. On episode 15 with Lauren Chiarello, we talked about how she is part of a committee here in New York with her hospital where she gives feedback when they're developing new wings of the hospital. And she's able to say, here are the things that are beneficial for patients and here's what worked well and here's what didn't work well. And that feedback is so valuable because mm -hmm. the, the patients are the ones who are experiencing it and using this space on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it, it's starting to go in the direction where patients are becoming included. Within the last couple of weeks here, I, I participated in a patient-focused uh, FDA meeting, basically providing the patient perspective on uh, on cystic fibrosis uh, as the FDA would, uh, would need to know it, basically for regulatory purposes. And like you're talking about with Lauren, uh, you know, it's important to have the, that patient feedback and that patient insight in all of these all of these realms of healthcare. The thing that we don't see though is patients in leadership positions. Whether or not that's because people aren't healthy enough to ever get there, you know, it's not for me to say. I of the opinion that people can get there. Um, but patients are not given leadership positions within these sectors. Like, you know, they're they're not holding executive leadership positions on the pharmaceutical side, on the payer side, meaning insurance and reimbursement agencies, um, in uh nonprofit sides and advocacy. You know, the, the patients have to have a a, a voice in healthcare and in these competing entities and within the industry and within basically all aspects of care, if we want to actually include the patient voice. Right now, we're just, we're, we're shouting into the wind. It's a matter of whether or not the other side wants to listen to us. Right. And that's actually a good segue because you launched a podcast, Breathe In. And I want to hear a little bit about what made you launch that and what that experience has been like. So we've actually been podcasting at the Boomer Sizing Foundation for like 10 years. Way um, ahead of your time. Yeah, we've, we were ahead of the curve uh, in the podcast game. We've been doing educational videos. We've been a lot of video podcasts, you know, basically just sharing patient stories because it's important for patients to get their story out there because if somebody's listening, you know, anyone listening and they take something from that and they learn something, then it immediately becomes beneficial. Right. Right. So Breathe In started uh, probably about a year and a half ago. Um, since then, we've had you know, over 50,000 downloads. So the podcast is doing well. Uh, I co-host it with uh, two other young ladies that have cystic fibrosis, uh, Tiffany Rich and Leah Farone. Uh, Tiffany is post-lung transplant. Leah, like me, has the lungs we were born with. And, and we really just kind of took a spin on on our podcast program that we've had at Boomer Size Foundation to make it more of a talk show, kind of like this. Um, mm -hmm. where we just talked about everything that has to do with cystic fibrosis. And, you know, to come from different angles of CF, you know, Tiffany's post-transplant, Leah worked in healthcare, and then, you know, me as an advocate, you know, we kind of have all of these um, different ideas about things that revolve around cystic fibrosis. And the actually the most interesting thing about CF, that's also like less known, is that people with CF, we cannot be around each other. So the reason being is because, you know, we're living with these chronic infections and our bodies are, are essentially uh, in a state where the infections can take hold, we can pass these infections onto each other, just like you and I could pass the common cold to each other. So it's it's actually a very dangerous thing for people with CF to be within proximity of each other. So I've never actually met Tiffany or Leah in person. You know, I've only had 
a, uh, a virtual connection with them. And that's interesting and funny because I have the same thing with my condition and I actually connected with someone who has my condition and we met up for coffee one day. We sent a photo of ourselves to my doctor and her response was, why are you guys so close to each other? Yeah, it's uh, it's isolating is what it is. You know, it's not like, uh, you know, some sort of cancer support group where everyone can go sit around a table, have coffee together and talk about their, you know, the issues they're having um, and, and really get benefit from it. People will see if we don't have that luxury. And you know, it sounds like you're also in the same boat as, as, as we are. And, and it's a very, uh, it's kind of a unique thing for some of these illnesses to be that way. Uh, because not only are you concerned about your own personal health, me, I, I'm like terrified of getting somebody else sick. You know, I... You're basically labeling yourself as a threat to somebody else is what you're doing. Um, and while I'm not a threat to the general public because a normal human body, you know, a healthy human body can shed the infection that I would normally, that I would pass on to a CF person. In the world of CF, you know, we, we deal with these nasty bacteria. And after years and years and years of antibiotic use, we uh, develop antibiotic resistance, right? So we're... Sounds so we, familiar. Yeah. So you know what I'm talking about here. You know, it's... It's, it's the the antibiotic you know resistance and and the stuff that we deal with in CF is just a very difficult thing, um and and as I'm sure you know it's it's something that creates a lot of stress you know you, you pass on cultures you you try one antibiotic doesn't work you got to go to the next and then you know you deal with the side effects of the antibiotics and there's a lot out there that people with CF and, and other chronic conditions are on we're basically on the forefront of the of the global antibiotic crisis what I consider it to be you know we're we're on the front lines of that battle. Yeah. No, I was on an oral antibiotic for many years and handled it really well. And then all of a sudden, my liver was not doing so well. And we think it's from that. We still don't truly know. And so they transitioned me over to doing the nebulizer drug. And now I'm doing both. So we're really trying to explore what works and what doesn't work. But to your point, you know, when my friend says to me, hey, I have a cold, I'm the one that goes, okay, then we're not meeting for dinner tonight. And they have to understand that I could really catch that and it can turn into something so much more serious than if, you know, your average person has a cold and they're surrounded by it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And it makes for like uncomfortable conversations within the family around Thanksgiving or, or Christmas or whatever, you know, when you're going to have these big family gatherings and all of a sudden you have to exclude the person who is, has, the, you know, the flu or something. Oh, yeah. Those are also some things that we deal with in CF. As I'm, you know, I'm sure you're well aware that you probably also deal with as well, um, which also further isolates patients um, from, from the general public. You know, I remember days when I was, you know, in middle school growing up, when every, you know, it was that time of year when everyone in class was sick, my parents would just not send me to school. You know, I would get an extended, you know, three or four day a weekend. And instead of, you know, being home sick or whatever, my my dad would take me to the movies or we'd go do something, you know, it was like, just keep going or safe from the, from the, from the, from the germs at school. But at the same time, you know, like it wasn't living in a glass box. It was just like, you know, proactive step uh, to take in, in that regard. What tips would you give to someone who does not have cystic fibrosis or a invisible illness to sort of know how to navigate managing someone that has this? So you're talking about like from the care care provider, a caregiver side? Not even a care provider, but even more like a friend. I mean, I love your story about how your friends handled the situation <laughs> when you just whipped out, you know, the nebulizer, but someone who doesn't know how to handle this stuff or becomes a new friend of yours and navigating this, what are those tips that you would give them? So, you know, I think it's important to listen to the person living with the illness, right? It's, it's the same thing as going to the doctor. You want the doctor to listen to you. You want your family to listen to you. You want everyone in your life to listen to you because you're the expert in the illness. And I think it's important for people to ask questions. You know, there's a lot of 
a lot of people don't know how to handle chronic illness when they come across it in the third party way. Um, because it is a, it's a pretty real reminder that they themselves aren't immortal, right? It's a real, it's a reminder that human life is very valuable and very, and very fragile. And I think it's important for people just to, you know, reach out an arm and be like, Hey, I'm here for you. You got to tell me what the hell you're dealing with. But at the same time, it's important for the patient to be able to effectively and productively talk about what, what they're dealing with. Um, you know, it's one of those things where, uh, it, it's like, it, they're like taboo topics for whatever reason in our culture, but it's not, you know, I'm willing to talk about my cystic fibrosis as, as we're doing right here, right now. Um, and, and it's important for people to listen, but, you know, I expect people that are in my life to be comfortable enough to ask me questions about CF. You know, I don't want them learning about CF on Wikipedia, for example, the, the CF they're going to learn about there is very different than the CF that I'm living with. Um, right. And I think it's important for people to take that step and, you know, meet uh, people halfway and, and really learn about what they're what they're dealing with. Yeah, I agree. I think it's so important to ask questions, but I think people don't know what questions to ask. Yeah, I think that's the right. problem. You're definitely right. You know, I, I think people are they're hesitant and they're, they also don't learn right, at any point in their lives how to manage that. You know, that they're in a situation where, you know, they, they don't exactly know, you know, what is appropriate, what isn't appropriate. And, you know, I think most of my friends would tell you that I have a pretty dry sense of humor. I have a pretty dark sense of humor because that's one of my coping mechanisms with cystic fibrosis. So I, you know, make things funny. I mean, you know, I, I got a feeding tube when I was uh, in college and the first thing I asked the nurse when I came out of surgery, I was like, can I put a beer down my feeding tube? And, you know, she was like, you know, it was a funny moment. She's like, honey, you're not the first one to ask. And then I put the test, you know, I got to college and I was, um, it was one of those like cold winter nights in Boston where, you know, all you're trying to do is find the motivation to go to the bar, right? It's one of those days in college. I went to Northeastern. I got Yeah. You. So, you know, what I'm talking about, and, you know, we were sitting around the room one day and I was like, all right, I got to, the morale of, of, of the boys is low. I got to, I got to change this. So I went into my room, grabbed my feeding tube, a beer funnel and a natty light. <laughs> and I walked right back out and had the people in the room knew I had CF and the other people like were friends of friends of friends, you know, so they had no idea. And uh, I just took my shirt off, put the feet, you know, put the feeding tube on and then threw the bottle, the funnel right into it. And I set the record for the fastest beer funnel in the history of Boston college, as you might imagine. And, uh, and my friend Max goes, Gunner, you've been given a gift. You can get drunk without actually having to drink. Natty, to be specific. And I was like, I was like, Max, you know, I don't know if I'd call that a gift, but it was like, uh, you know, I just included my friends in my illness, like right there at the moment. I will say though, two hours later, the beer came right back up and I actually did taste it in my mouth. Um, <laughs> but but it sounds like all of this is humor and your personality is part of your coping mechanism yeah it definitely is you know i'm just very transparent with the way things are it's part of me not everyone with cf or you know living with chronic illnesses like that i realize that some people manage it in their own way um i'm just very i think i'm pretty outgoing with my uh with my cf and that may or may not be unusual i, I guess i'm not really to say uh but in, in the moment it was it felt appropriate and uh you know, while I think half people in the room who didn't know I had CF were just totally shocked at what they had just seen. Um, the rest, understandably so. The rest of my friends who knew that I had CF were like, "Okay, there's Gunner." Yeah, that's him. This is how he handles this stuff. That's exactly. So, what can people do to support the cystic fibrosis community and the Boomer Esiason Foundation? So, people can go to esiason.org. It's a lot of vowels: e s i a s o n dot org. Uh, you can learn about the Boomer Esiason Foundation there. You can follow me. Go to my website, my blog at GunnarEsiason.com. 
Um, I'm on Twitter, Instagram. Our podcast is uh, Breathe In, available on iTunes and SoundCloud. Uh, you can follow the Instagram for the podcast um, at Breathe underscore In underscore Pod on Instagram. And then we, you know, we we put stuff up all the time. We're we're always kind of dynamically changing. Like I said, this is the golden age of cystic fibrosis drug development. So, you know, people will see if there's you know, there's going to be more of us out there because you know more people are continuing to be born with cystic fibrosis, but we're going to start living longer. So. Uh, you know, while there may only be 30,000 of us or 40,000 of us in the U.S., whatever uh, is that accepted number, that, that number is going to go up. So, you know, it's going to be, it's, you know, while it's not super common, it's going to, people are going to hear about it. And, uh, you know, like I said, within the next year or two, you know, I'm hoping that we'll get this uh, medication that we were talking about uh, a little bit before. And that's going to, that'll change a lot of our lives. I love it. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. And thank you for the work that you're doing, because it's really, really clearly impacting people and their lives and creating a community around cystic fibrosis. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Thanks for tuning into Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com. Follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor. Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer. Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music. And Krista Gray for the logo and design concepts.